Open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm glad you all are here today. We're going to be looking at some amazing things. If you're a guest, you're not normally in our services here. Normally, we're just going to open a text and we're going to preach through a book of the Bible. We're going to look at what God has said and compare it to other scriptures. That's, uh, I believe that's the way that God would have us to, to worship Him is by studying His Word and uh, hearing from Him, not men. Amen? Today, though, for this month, what we're doing is we're looking at what's going on in the world and we're trying to find out what God has said about it. We as believers don't have to be surprised by any of this. And the other thing that, that, we, that you need to know if you're a guest or you, this is your first time here uh, in a while is that we believe that every word of God is true. There are no words in this book by accident. Everyone is on purpose. And when we study those words, we find out what God has for us today, right now. This book is alive. His word is alive. His word is, is life in us. And so we study what God has said, and it is just as relevant today as it was when the last bit of it was penned in A.D. 90, almost 2,000 years ago. It's still true. It's still alive. And so we're going to be looking at some of that today. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 1. Now remember, First and Second Thessalonians are written to the church in the last days, that before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, there would be some wild things going on. So he wrote the book of First Thessalonians so people would know how to behave in the church in the last days. Then he wrote the book of Second Thessalonians so that we could know how not to be deceived in the last days. You understand there's a lot of people in the world that are deceived right now. Well, the Bible clears all of that up. And what had happened was someone had written a letter to these Christians in Thessalonica, and they were claiming that they were the Apostle Paul, but they weren't. There was a false letter that had come to Thessalonica telling them that the rapture had already taken place, that Jesus Christ had already returned. So Paul's clearing that up in his letter to Thessalonica. All right? So look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you. By any means, for that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Dear Heavenly Father, help us now as we look at this subject of the world economy. Lord, help us to have your mind on it and then give us discernment to look at this information and, and take it in uh, for the perspective that your word brings. Help us, Lord, not to be soon shaken. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that you need to understand about this text is if you look at chapter 2 and verse 1, now we beseech you, brethren, brethren, we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ when we have placed our faith and trust in him alone. There are only two families in the world. God's family and Satan's family. When you're born again, you are born into the family of God. Isn't that wonderful? That's a, that's a wonderful thing. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, He said, You are of your father, the devil. How about that? So you are either of your father, the devil, devil or you are of the father, God. And the only way God becomes your father 
is when you come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then you become a son of God. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. But to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to be called the sons of God. So if you're born again, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, then there's no reason for you to be shaken by these things. If you have not, then you had better be shaken. Amen? Now, I want you to see something. We're going to come back to 2 Thessalonians a little bit later in the message. But go to 1 Timothy. It's the next book over. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to read this whole chapter. Now, remember what God has told us, that the book of First and Second Timothy were penned by the Apostle Paul, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of this was so that we would know how to behave in the house of God. And it says that in chapter 3, uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the church is not just some mystical body out there. The church is the local church that has a pastor, and then this book tells the pastor how to behave and the people how to behave. That's why this book is here. Amen? Amen. Three of you? Good. Then, First Timothy chapter 6 now. Paul has given the truth of the first book. Now look at verse chapter 6 and verse 1 of First Timothy. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. Now I've got to tell you, if I was a slave, I don't think I'd like it. Amen? How many of you feel like you'd probably agree with that statement? How many of your wives feel, no, don't raise your hand. This chapter goes from slaves to rich people. That, that's who is dealt with in this chapter. So let me tell you something. All of us are somewhere in between there. Right? But notice what it says about the slaves. It says, let, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. See, God expects us as believers to behave right no matter what our station in life is. But you don't know how they treated me. Are you a slave? See, it's very clear. Chapter or verse 2. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. Look at this. These things teach and exhort. So the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, make sure you tell that slaves to honor their masters. And if they have believing masters, they need to know that that master is their brother in Christ. And now you might be sitting out there, but slavery is not right. Well, I would agree with that. But sometime you'll be in a situation that's not right and you are still supposed to behave as a believer. Is that what the Bible says? See, remember, we said here at Grace Baptist that we believe every word of this is true and that we're supposed to submit to it, even the uncomfortable stuff. All right, now look at the next verse. 
If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. See, the idea is that when we get to the place that we think that the blessing of God, if I were to teach you that the blessing of God on your life is determined by how much money you have, the Bible says, I am subverting and perverting the word. Is that what it just said? It's exactly what it just said. Now, let me tell you something. You and I have been blessed beyond any group of people in the history of the world, financially. We live a lifestyle that is so far above what anyone else in the world ever dreamed of for the last 6,000 years of human history that we can't even imagine it. But the Bible tells us that if you think that godliness is gain, you're wrong. Is that what the text says? All right. Now look at the next verse. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Isn't that true? Lots of funerals, but you never see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. You're not taking it with you. All right, look what the Bible says. And having food, verse 8, and having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So now don't miss this. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. If you are raising your children... And the American dream has always been, I want my children to have a little bit better than I did. Right? But if that's the basis for raising your kids, the Bible says that you are putting your children in a snare, the snare of the devil. Well, I just want my kids to be successful. Well, of course we do. My desire for Lydia is that she grow up to be a failure. Can you imagine? That's crazy. But godly success and worldly success are not the same thing. Are you saying you want your kids to grow up and be poor? No. I want them to grow up and be whatever God wants them to be. If that happens to be wealthy, great. They'll take care of me in my old age. If not, God will provide. Amen? I cannot establish their future based on money. If I do, and, and you understand that there are people that their kids will not be in an evening service because they might miss school the next day. Or they might not do well on a test the next day. Because we think that gain is godliness. Isn't that interesting? How backwards our entire culture has gotten. We, next week we're looking at modern education. The council of the ungodly. And we have erected a God in America, the number one God in America, our number one idol that we bow down before is the almighty dollar. And second is education. We worship those things. 
and we put them before God. According to the Bible, we do. So now the Bible says that if, if my desire is to be rich, if that is where I, I place my emphasis is to be rich, the Bible says that, that in verse 9, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Why? Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Has anyone here ever heard that before? Why don't we believe it? Which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I'm just telling you, history is replete with stories of people who were born again. They know God. They've been taught right. And they destroy their families because of money. How many of you have ever heard of a family that somebody dies? And then the family is split because of the inheritance. Ever heard of that? Oh, that's really godly. I'm just telling you, when my folks die, and I hope it's a long time from now, I'm not going to fight my brother and sisters over the bills they owe. (laughs) Whatever is left, okay? Whatever is left, why in the world would I lose a relationship with my brother and sister and nieces and nephews over some stuff. And people do it all the time. Why? Because they think godliness is gain. They're wrapped up in riches, that stuff. But you don't understand, that has sentimental value to me. Okay, then go to their house and see it when, you want to, when you're feeling sentimental. Um, now, verse 11. But these things, O man of God... Or, but thou, O man of God. All you men in here. All you men. How many of you want to be a godly man? Would you raise your hand if you want to be a godly man? All right, so then this is addressed to you. Is that right? Of course, this is to Timothy, who was a man of God, pastoring the church. But all of us are supposed to be men of God, godly men. So this is addressed to us. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art called. What does that mean? Does that mean that if you follow after riches, you're not saved? No. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's what the Bible says. Seek Him first. Lay hold on eternal life. When you understand that this life is short, there is an eternity, well, then that changes the way that I operate here on earth. Lay hold on that. Then it says, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's happening soon. Which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate. So if you have anyone else that calls himself a potentate. Amen? Who is the blessed? What's the word right before potentate? So if anybody else calls him a potentate, 
I think maybe they're wrong. The King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Now look at verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world. Now here's what I want you to write right next to that. This is me. This is me. If I asked you how many of you are rich, not many of us would raise our hand. But if you live in the United States of America, you're in the top 1% of the people in the world. That means you're rich. Amen? Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Now, what a chapter of the Bible. Is there some practical stuff for us in the church today in that passage of Scripture? The primary thing I want us to focus on right now is the anxiety of uncertain riches. When you place your future and your security and your hope in money, the Bible says that is uncertain, but God is sure. You put your hope and faith and trust in the God of the ages. He'll never let you down. He is sure. He's true. Um, let's look at some things this morning. The world economy. The anxiety of uncertain riches. Where are we? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at where are we? How did we get here? Where are we going? So in the world economy, where are we? Well... The national debt of the United States, see this right here? That's $12 trillion, our national debt. Unfunded liabilities of Social Security and Medicare, $63 trillion. Here's the point. We have a, we have a total national debt of $63 trillion, or $65 trillion, all right? Here's where this becomes so important. This is how much we owe. This is how much you and I... I mean, do we have any Americans here? This is how much we owe. It's hard to comprehend how much this is. But our debt, we have promised to pay, is $65 trillion. The, the GDP, the gross product of the entire world, is about $60 trillion. We owe more than the world is worth. Is that crazy? And yet everybody keeps going to the trough. What's government going to do for me? What's government going to do for me? What are we going to get next? Every politician is going to promise something else and promise something else and promise something else. At this point, why not? Look, 
our unfunded liabilities grow at four to five trillion dollars a year. A trillion dollars. Now that's hard to comprehend. Let's let's try to figure out what that's talking about. The government brings in two point trillion dollars a year in tax revenue. All right? Two point two point one trillion dollars. Already in two thousand nine, we have an eight hundred billion dollar stimulus package and another $400 billion in a supplemental bill. So here we're bringing in $2.1 trillion, and we're spending $1.2 trillion at one time. How many of you understand that doesn't work? Now, here's something that you need to understand. How much is a trillion dollars? If you were paid $1 per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it would take you $2 million to earn $1 trillion. It would take you $2 million years to earn $1 trillion. And we're in debt $65 trillion. That's tough to accomplish. You've got to work really hard at that. How about this? If you had gone into business on the day Jesus was born, and your business lost $1 million a day, 365 days a year. Sounds like the government, doesn't it? It would take you until October 2737 to lose one trillion. A million dollars a day. It would take you until 2737 to lose one trillion. We're 65 trillion dollars in debt. Are you, how many of you, you're, you're starting to grasp the significance of this? You say, well, we'll just pay it off. Do you know what? Do you know how much money? The United States produces how much product value it produces a year? $14 trillion. So if you take everything that is produced in America, assuming we can continue to produce, for the next, what would that take? Five years, basically? Four or five years? It's just not going to happen. How about we just tax the rich? How many of you ever heard someone say that? We're just going to tax the rich. We're only going to tax those who make over... The wealthiest 1% in America pay 39.9% of the United States income tax. They already pay 40% of it, the top 1%. The top 10% pay 71% of the income tax. The bottom 50% of earners now make 13% of the country's total income, yet pay less than 3% of all income taxes. Folks, you can't pay it off by taxing the rich. You can't do it. So when someone promises you, when a politician promises you, I'm going to give you something and take it away from someone else, first of all, that's called stealing. Um, Brother Bob, I like that Buick Lucerne of yours. I think Laura ought to have it. Give me the keys. See, here's the difference. I'll bet you, Bob, if we really want it, we'll probably give it to us. It's okay, Patsy. We're not going to ask. <laughs> you know, I guarantee you, if I really needed something, Bob would help me. That's completely different than the government coming in and saying, give her your keys. That's what we're talking about with this. You say, you're just a Republican. Actually, I'm so sick of the Republicans, I could throw up. But it doesn't matter. President Bush, now, I'm going to give you some figures right now. I want you to think about something. From the beginning of our country, from the beginning of our country 
until, I think like the year 2000, all of the presidents accumulated about a trillion dollars in debt. All of them. The Bush administration accumulated $1.4 trillion in eight years. So from the beginning of our country through the year 2000, $1 trillion in debt. The Bush administration alone, $1.4 trillion. But the Obama administration, not to be outdone, $2 trillion in the first three months of the administration. Where's it going to end, folks? Do you understand that our country is being stolen from us? And the Bible has given us the principles by which to live. Let's go on. What is the world saying about our currency? HSBC, this is from the London Telegraph. All right? This is from September 20th, 2009. HBC, HSBC bids farewell to dollar supremacy. The sun is setting on the U.S. dollar as the ultra-loose monetary policy of the U.S. Federal Reserve forces China and the vibrant economies of the emerging world to, force a new, to, to forge a new global currency order, according to a new report by HSBC. You understand what that's saying? China and these other countries are wanting to develop a new global currency because the dollar is so weak. Now, who is HSBC? The Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation. Do you know how much China has in America? They have $900 billion. They have $900 billion American dollars. Because we just keep going and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. We don't have any money. The country, Our country has no money. So if we want to do something, we've got to go to China or we've got to go to Saudi Arabia and borrow the money to do whatever it is that we want to do. We don't have any money. The demise of the dollar. This is from Robert Fisk, October 6, 2009, in the Independent UK. In the most profound financial change in recent Middle East history, Gulf Arabs are planning, along with China, Russia, Japan, and France, to end the dollar dealings for oil, moving instead to a basket of currencies, including the Japanese yen and Chinese yuan, the euro, gold, and a new unified currency planned for nations in the Gulf Cooperation Council. So here's the idea. The Arab nations are getting together to come up with their own currency. This is not conspiracy stuff. This isn't some wacko standing with a, with a breadboard sign out on, you're walking up and down the street. This is just the business paper in London. All of these countries are getting together, and right now oil is traded based on the U.S. dollar. So all of the other countries of the world that want to buy oil, they have to keep a supply of U.S. dollars so that they can trade for oil. It's very simple. If they remove, if OPEC removes the dollar as the basis for trade in oil, they won't have any use for those dollars. What's going to happen to them? They're all going to come back to the United States of America. And here's the idea. We've got a slide that explains this somewhere. We'll get to it in a minute. But it's like diamonds. I want you to think of dollars like diamonds. Anybody here like diamonds? They're a girl's best friend. Right? Well, diamonds have intrinsic value because of their beauty. There's a certain amount of value that they have simply because they're beautiful. That's intrinsic value. Their trade value, though, is based on their rarity. 
They cost more than just a rock that you find outside because there are less of them. If all of a sudden we found mountains full of diamonds, the value of your wedding ring sentimentally would stay the same. But the value of it monetarily would go down because there would be more of them. Scarcity means value. Does that make sense? So the idea now, if all of these dollars flood back into the American market, that means that my individual dollar is now worth less. That leads to price inflation. Price inflation is when the item costs more dollars. So if I have this box of Kleenex, and this box of Kleenex costs 98 cents, all right? When we have inflation, the value of this is still 98 cents. That's the value. The price of it goes up to two, three, four, five dollars because the dollars themselves are becoming worth less. All right? That's what's going on in our world right now, and that's why they're wanting to move away from dollars in these countries. The Washington Post. The dollar's slide gives rise to calls for new reserve. We have the Federal Reserve. We're going to look at that. and that's, the, that's who controls our monetary policy in America. This is calling for a new Federal Reserve on a global basis. This is from Frank Ahrens, and we're going to read a, a pretty long section. I hope that you can see it. If you can't, I'll read it. The U.S. dollar continued its six-month slide Tuesday. This is from October 7, 2009. The U.S. dollar continued its six-month slide Tuesday amid a growing international chorus that wants the dollar replaced or at least supplemented as the world's reserve currency, a move that would end the greenback six decades of global dominance. So what happened was at the Brenton Woods Conference in the 1940s, 1944, following World War II, all of the international community got together and decided that the dollar would be the basis for all trade. And that gave the dollar a lot of value. Now they're wanting to move it away from that. China was the first major power to attack the greenback, calling in March for the dollar to be replaced as the world's reserve currency. China holds more U.S. debt than any other country, about $800 billion. And the further the dollar drops, the less the value of the U.S. debt owed to China. All right, so those dollars are worth less. Not worthless, but worth less. Both China and Russia are, are good friends. And we're not talking about the Russian or Chinese people. They're wonderful people. We're talking about the governments, right? Okay. Both China and Russia have called for a new global supercurrency, similar but larger in scale to the euro, that would replace the dollar. Now, does that, honestly, does that scare you a little bit? A new currency? Huh. The United States would be mistaken. This is, this is from Robert Zellick, the World Bank president, from September 30th, 2009. We tried to be as current as we could with all this information. He just said this. The United States would be mistaken to take for granted the dollar's place as the world's predominant reserve currency. In other words, the president of the World Bank is saying, you Americans better not count on your dollar very much longer. Huh. What does our text say? Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. But trust God. Trust God. Let's go on. How did we get here? How in the world did we get to this place? 
Have you ever looked at your own debt and you said, how did this happen? Well, I think a lot of folks, when they get married, they get a credit card. And, man, that's a license to spend. And you go in and you start buying and you start buying and you start buying. Before you know it, you've got $5,000 gone. I think a lot of people have been through that situation. The only problem is we've been on about a 100-year spending spree in America. How did we get here? A fiat currency. What is a fiat currency? It's not a currency named after a car. A fiat is an order sent down by a king. Our currency used to be based on silver, then it was based on gold. It was called the gold standard. How many of you remember silver certificates? That meant that your dollar bill was worth a dollar of silver. There was something behind it. All right? When we moved to a fiat currency, now your dollar is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. How many of you ever heard that statement? Okay. Now imagine this. Imagine if Nick has borrowed $100 from me and he didn't pay it back. And then he came back maybe a few months later and borrowed another $100 for me. And I go ahead and give it to him, and he doesn't pay it back. And he does that every, let's say he does it every month for about five years. How many of you think that pretty soon I'm going to stop loaning? You think? Well, you need to understand that the full faith and credit of the United States government is gone. Do you understand that's what these newspapers are saying? There's no confidence in the U.S. dollar. What are we going to do? This is the U.S. economy. Well, how did we get here? Because of the fiat currency, which was the result of the Federal Reserve System. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but the Federal Reserve, what is the Federal Reserve? It's a private, not federal bank, that controls the money supply of the United States. Did you know the Federal Reserve is not federal? It's just uh, private bankers. Did you know that all of your money... Your money policy is set by people who do not work for you. They work for themselves. All this stuff that I'm telling you right now was conspiracy, kook, weirdo, trilateral commission conspiracy people were saying all this stuff. Now all of a sudden, it's all proven to be true. Every bit of it. There were a group of people. It's a private bank that controls the money supply of the United States. What happened was you had uh, J.P. Morgan and the Rockefellers, and the Rothschilds. Any of you heard of those na- ever heard of those names? Rothschilds in England, Rockefellers, J.P. Morgan, uh, the, the National Bank, National City Bank of New York. Uh, all of those banks, they were afraid of having the currency controlled based on, on solid assets like gold. They wanted to move it away from that as an insulation against their bad decisions. All right? At the end of the 1800s, there was a terrible depression that that rocked the world. These guys are trying to keep that from happening, not to you, to keep it from happening to them. That's what happened here. That's what this is about. It was founded at the Jekyll Island Club off the coast of Georgia in 1913. The founding members included Nelson Aldrich, Republican whip in the Senate, chairman of the National Monetary Commission, business associate of J.P. Morgan, father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller. Isn't it interesting? Who got all the money in the bailout? J.P. Morgan. Rockefellers. You can't make this stuff up. Abraham Pyatt Andrew, Assistant Secretary uh, to the U.S. Tre- of the U.S. Treasury. Frank Vanderlip, President of the National City Bank of New York. 
Any of that interesting lately? Henry P. Davidson, senior partner of J.P. Morgan Company. Charles D. Norton, president of J.P. Morgan's First National Bank of New York. Benjamin Strong, head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. Paul M. Warburg, a partner of Kuhn Loeb and Company, a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France. These are the people that set monetary policy for you and for me. And when they talk about the, the, the Fed has lowered the, the standard rate by a quarter percent. How many of you ever heard that on the news? What does that mean? That means these guys get together and decide how much they're going to charge to loan the bank's money. Your bank borrows money from these guys. And these guys make money on that. That's how it works. So here's the idea. We talked about inflation. That, the simple definition, more money, means the money has less value. When the Fed begins pumping money out, remember what happened earlier this year. When they tried to do this bailout, the stimulus package, they didn't have the money. So the Fed literally printed a trillion more dollars. Honestly, do you know what it is? You know what that is? That's me taking my money to the copy machine and just printing more. What do they call it when you do that? Is it any, seriously, is it any different? No. Why don't they like counterfeiting? Because that reduces the value of their money. That's why you're not allowed to counterfeit. But they're doing it to you. See, here's the idea. If I make $100 a week and they print more money so that this box of Kleenex no longer costs a dollar, they print so much money that it now costs $5, what have they done? They've taken $4 from me. That's what they've done. That's what the government is doing right now, printing more and more money. But you need to understand, it's not only America that does that. The euro is a fiat currency. There is no basis for it. When they, when they initially introduced the euro, they made it equal with the dollar. Well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. It was just maybe two years ago that the 900 million people in the European Union, that their GDP finally equaled that of our 300 million. So how is their dollar worth the same as our dollar? Because they said it was. Do you guys love that answer because I said so? Now, why are we doing this? Is that a good question? Why is the government spending and spending and spending and spending? How did this happen? You say it's always been that way. No, wait a minute. Let me remind you, from 1776 through 2000, a trillion dollars. From 2000 to 2008, 1.2 trillion. First three months of this year, 2 trillion. It's not always been this way, folks. Help me out with something. How many of you understand it's not always been this way? We're in serious trouble. We are in serious trouble. Why? The Cloward-Piven strategy. This is why this is happening. The Cloward-Piven strategy is named after Columbia University sociologists Richard Cloward and Francis Piven. In 1966, they came up with a concept to overthrow our government. 
All right, remember what we always called these people? We called them radicals, revolutionary radicals. How many of you remember the revolutionary radicals of the 1960s? How many of you are old enough to remember that? These are people, their purpose, their intent was to overthrow the United States government. That was the purpose, give it a new system, a new socialist system. So here's what their goal was to overthrow capitalism. How? By overwhelming the government bureaucracy with entitlement demands. They were going to overwhelm the bureaucracy so that it crashed. All right? The created crisis would then provide the impetus to bring about radical political change. This is the Cloward Piven strategy. If you read Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky, this is where he learned it. Our president taught Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals for five years. He's intimately familiar with this strategy. All right? According to discoverthenetworks.org, rather than placating the poor with government handouts, this is what Cloward and Piven wrote, activists should work to sabotage and destroy the welfare system. The collapse of the welfare state would ignite a political and financial crisis that would rock the nation. Now, you understand that's the crisis we're in right now? How was the, how was the system collapsed? What was the final straw to bring about the, the collapse. There was a Glass-Steagall amendment. It, it, was a, it was a rule that made it to where if a bank was loaning money, taking deposits, loaning money, that they could not invest that money in risky things. How many of you think that's a good idea? Well, that regulation was removed, I think, 1980. All right, 1977, there was an act, um, the Community Prosperity Act, something like that. They always put great names on them. And what that said was it removed from the banks, it told the banks that they had to loan money to people who couldn't pay it back. They had to loan money to people who were a bad risk. Well, then when they, when they removed the restriction from banks investing in shady loans... And then you have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, these government lenders. Listen, 50% of the mortgages today in our country are held by the government. Was that our founder's plan? No. Well, when all of that collapsed, when they found out that these mortgages weren't worth anything because people weren't paying them, how many of you have heard the term derivatives lately? It was the derivatives market that did it. Well, what derivatives are, that's just a word for taking these subprime loans, these bad loans, these, this debt that would probably not be repaid. You put all that together and you wrap it up in nice paper, put a bow on it and sell it to somebody. Well, the banks bought these. Uh, I didn't take the time to print it out. But Citibank, listen to how much Citibank owns their liability in these things. Are you ready for this? $90 trillion. Well, you say, they don't have that kind of financial base because of the way the Federal Reserve loans money. They only had to have 1% capital to loan. So out of that $90 trillion they're on the hook for, they've only got 1% of collateral. That's it. That's only one bank. All of the major banks are in debt that way because of the Federal Reserve System. There's no pulling back from this, folks. That money is just gone. What they're doing is now that, that same strategy, that all of that came, this welfare state, it all came 
The strategy is based on the fact that a vast discrepancy exists between the benefits to which people are entitled under public welfare programs and the sums which they actually receive. Now, listen to what this says. This is the, the Cloward-Piven strategy. The discrepancy exists between the benefits to which people are, are entitled and the sums which they actually receive. Movements that depend on involving masses of poor people have generally failed in America. Why would the proposed strategy to engage the poor succeed? First, this promises immediate economic benefit. You can get a bunch of poor people together if you tell them, if you vote for me, I'll give you something. I should have the, the video. We don't have it. But how many of you saw the lady right after, at, at the inaugural, or at the, uh, uh, after the election, the celebration of the election of President Obama, she said, now President Obama's going to pay my mortgage, going to pay my gas, going to pay for my car. How many of you saw that? Well, if I thought somebody's going to give me that, I'd probably vote for him too. First, this promise of economic benefit. Second, this strategy to succeed, for this strategy to succeed, one need not ask more of most of the poor than that they claim lawful benefits. Anyone here ever heard of ACORN? Do you know what ACORN does? They go into poor communities and they make sure they're getting all of the benefits to which they're lawfully entitled. Get as many people on the welfare roll as you can. That's what it's about. Third, the prospects for mass influence are enhanced because this plan provides a practical basis for a coalition between poor whites and poor Negroes. How are we going to get all of the poor people together, no matter what their race is? Give them stuff. This was the weight of the poor, a strategy to end poverty in the nation, May 2nd, 1966. This wasn't private. They published it in National Magazine. Here's the idea. They are trying to end poverty. How do they end poverty? By redistributing the wealth. What's that called? Marxism. Socialism. Marxism. Communism. Anybody here ready for communism? You like that idea? It's worked really well around the world, hasn't it? That's what these people are trying to bring us. Now, here's what you got to understand. Where are we going? We, we looked at how we got here. Now, where are we going? We are on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis, and the nations will accept the new world order. David Rockefeller said that in 1994. How many of you think that sounds like conspiracy kook stuff? These are the people that are in power now. How about President Bush, the first President Bush? This is his State of the Union address. I remember being shocked watching it. Some of you may also. The world can therefore seize the opportunity, the Persian Gulf crisis, to fulfill the long-held promise of a new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind. It's coming. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. This is what's coming. How about this? Henry Kissinger. NAFTA is a major stepping stone to the new world order. Why? Why? Because we'll stop making stuff here. We'll have it made someplace else where the wages are maybe one-fifth of what they are here, and we'll keep the borders open so that we keep a unified structure here, undermine the dollar, heading toward a new world order. That's what they're trying to accomplish. 
And I got to tell you, it was the Republicans that were pushing NAFTA. But it was Bill Clinton that signed it. So, 2009 will mark the beginning of a new world order. Look, he didn't give up on it. That's November of 2008. Where are we going, folks? Once the smoke clears, I suspect we will find ourselves living in a world of globalization on steroids. This is from, but this is from Thomas Friedman, economic writer for the, UX, UX, uh, for the New York Times, October 19th, 2008. Um, we're going to see something about the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Here's what, here's what this is. The International Monetary, and this is from their website. I just went to their website, copied who they say they are, and printed it. The International Monetary Fund and the World Bank were both created at an international conference convened in Bretton Woods, uh, New Hampshire, United States, in July 1944. The goal of the conference was to establish a framework for economic cooperation and development that would lead to a more stable and prosperous global economy. This isn't new. While this goal remains central to both institutions, their work is constantly evolving in response to new economic developments and challenges. Here's where that last statement becomes really important. In 1944, the dollar was set as the basis for all of this. Now listen to what they're saying. This is from Rahm Emanuel, Chief of Staff to the President of the United States, 2008. You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. I think America as a whole in 1973 and 1974, and not just my view, but obviously the administration, missed the opportunity to deal with the energy crisis that was before us. For a long time, our entire energy policy came down to cheap oil. This is an opportunity, what used to be long-term problems, be they in the healthcare area, energy area, education area, fiscal area, tax area, regulatory reform area, things that we had postponed for too long that were long-term are now immediate and must be dealt with. And this crisis provides the opportunity for us, as I would say, the opportunity to do things that you could not do before. I just read a book recently, this, this week, and he said that he had been told, this author's name is Mark Hitchcock, he had been told that the Chinese character for crisis are challenge and opportunity. And what these people are saying is that, don't miss what he said, let's not waste this crisis. This crisis will give us the opportunity to change education, to change um, health care policy, to change environmental policy, to change taxes. Is any of that happening? What are they doing? What is this? This is the Cloud-Piven strategy. Don't waste the crisis. We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Let me ask you a question. Do we in America have issues that need to be dealt with? Do we need to fundamentally change our government? You got, how many of you like the Constitution? You think it's done pretty well for a couple hundred years? You understand they're using this crisis to change our country. Are you just speaking against President Obama? I'm speaking against all of the globalists, Republican and Democrat. Why? Because it is a tool, and we're going to see, for Satan. Let's see what Tim... Now, that was the president's chief of staff and then the president. Now, Tim Geithner is our treasury secretary. This is the guy that he's in charge of the IRS, but he failed to pay $100,000 in taxes. You and I go to jail. He gets put in charge of the treasury.
You can't make this stuff up. Right? So, well, the guy that's in charge of the finance committee, he just forgot that he had $2.4 million and stuff that he didn't claim on his taxes. And the only job he's ever had is congressman. Where'd that $2.4 million come from? Raise your hand. Okay. So now, here he is. This is Timothy Geithner, Treasury Secretary. Here's, he's, he's being asked a question. Thank you. Um, wonder if you could comment on, on two related things. One, the uh, Chinese government proposal about a, about a global currency. Pause that. And about... Did you hear what he's asking? The Chinese government has proposed a global currency. Now remember, it was only us Christians, weirdos, that believed the one world currency was coming. How many of you remember that? Seriously. Okay, go ahead and finish the question. The IMF regulations that were the new IMF uh, idea about, you know, the general agreements to borrow and having a faster uh, ability to disperse to emerging markets. Uh, on, on the first question, I haven't read the governor's proposal. Uh, he's a, uh, a um, remarkably, a, a uh, very thoughtful, very careful uh, distinguished central banker. You have to be that smart. Generally find him sensible in every issue. But as I understand this proposal, it's a proposal designed to increase the use of the IMF's special drawing rights. IMF's special drawing rights. And here's something that you've got to understand. This is called trade speak. What these people do is they speak in terms that you and I don't have any idea what they're talking about. That would be like me as your pastor standing up and saying, one of the reasons that fundamentalists are in existence is because we wanted to fight the inroads of the Graf Wellhausen documentary hypothesis. Well, there are one or two of you in here who have been trained in that, and you know what I'm talking about. Patrick Kennedy, you know what I'm talking about exactly with all that stuff. The rest of you don't. Why? Because it's not necessary. It's not important information. They're, they're terms of craft. You know, uh, one of the things that our doctors work very hard at is taking the medical speak and bringing it down into things that you can understand. Yes, you have a pulmonary thrombosis. That's, I don't know, it sounds like a trombone or something. I don't even know if there's a... I don't know what that... And they, they give you these terms. Well, good doctors, they need to know those terms, but they put them in... They put it in speech that you can understand, right? That's what you want from your doctors, right? We don't expect that from our government officials. So I'm going to let him finish what he's saying, then I'm going to tell you what he said. We're actually quite open to that suggestion. Uh, but you should think of it as rather evolutionary, building on the current architecture, than, rather, than, um, rather than moving us to global monetary union. Rather. I bet he got beat up a lot when he was a kid. Here, here's the idea. What he's saying is, he's asked a question. Treasury Secretary of the United States of America is asked if we're going to go to a global currency. And then the head of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and we, we showed you what that was for. It was to make sure that trade happened in the world based on the dollar. And so we'd have exchange rates. They set the exchange rates. So now here's what's happened. The head, the governor of the International Monetary Fund, wants to use this apparatus that's called special drawing rights. Um, special drawing rights. SDRs were originally created to replace gold and silver in large international transactions. Okay, why did they do that? Because the global economy had grown so much there wasn't enough gold to trade. Do you know what that means? It grew past the value of the stuff that was being traded. It's wild, isn't it? So what they did 
was they established this for all this trade. Then look at the look down here. Thus, SDRs are special trading rights or paper gold are credits that nations with balance of trade surpluses can draw upon nations with balance of trade deficits. So here's the idea. This is what they're doing. This has been this is a rule that's been there for years, but they've never used it. Because if somebody wants to trade in U.S. dollars, what do they do? They trade in U.S. dollars. Well, now because the dollar has been devalued, but that's still the standard currency of the International Monetary Fund, now we're going to use SDRs. What is that? It's something that, according to Geithner, is an evolutionary change that will take us to the global currency rather than bringing it right now. That's exactly what he just said. Where are we going? We're going to a global currency. Are the leaders of the United States seeing the need for global currency? Look at this. This is Bloomberg. There is going to be a new financial world order that will be born of this, September 16, 2008. Financial crisis reshapes world order. Washington Post, October 12, 2008. The G7, whenever you see that word G7, G20, that's just group of seven or group of 20. The G7 are the seven wealthiest governments in America. Here's what they've said. G7 sets, uh, sets sights on new world order. This is from the French press agency, February 15th, 2009. That's what, world, that's what world leaders are saying about the world economy right now, going to a one world currency. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 6. Where are we going? Revelation chapter 6. Now what's happening here is John, the beloved disciple, he's the last one left. All the rest have been killed. He's on the Isle of Patmos in exile. He is there getting ready to die. But God brings him a vision. And what he does is he shows him what's going to happen in the world to come. All right? When he gets to he, he, in, in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And then he says, Come up hither. I will show you things which must be hereafter at the end of verse 4. Verse 2, and or I'm sorry, at the end of verse 1. Verse 2, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one that sat on the throne. So now he's into he in heaven, and he's given a scroll, and the scroll is opened. Look at verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So here's four horsemen of the apocalypse. They come into the world. All believers have been taken out, and we're with Jesus Christ. What's left here on the world are unbelievers. And then there are some witnesses that come and start preaching the gospel. But in the meantime, God begins to judge the world. That's what's going on here. The first horse comes, and that brings war, conquering and to conquer. The second horse, that's the second seal, is the second horse. And there went out another horse that was red. And uh, power was given to him that sat there to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given him a great sword. So he's got, there's no peace anywhere on the earth. It's just, just war. Verse 5. And when he had opened the third seal, 
I heard the beast say, come and see. And lo, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice say in the midst of the four beasts, or I heard a, a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. What's that talking about? When the Antichrist comes, there is going to be worldwide inflation. Now, we've seen this before. The Weimar Republic took place in, in Germany after World War I. They were defeated, and their currency was devalued. Um, one of the guys I was listening to said that his parents or his grandparents had a restaurant in Germany at the time that they sold, and they lost everything. Because they sold it for a certain amount. Let's say they sold it for a thousand marks. By the time, this is how bad inflation happened. Devaluation of the currency, inflation of prices. This is how fast it happened. They sold it. By the time they closed and got the check, the value of the check was enough to buy a loaf of bread. How many of you have seen the pictures of people carrying wheelbarrows of money? Weimar Republic. That's what happened in Germany. The result of that was Adolf Hitler. Because, listen, if you'll promise people who are hungry food in their bellies, warmth in their homes, clothing for their children, they would elect the devil. And they do. They did. I mean, don't you think Hitler's as close to the devil as we've seen? That was just Satan's run at the tribulation period. And that's what's going to come. Then look at Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18. Um. Let's look at verse 11. You'll see where he comes from. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now, you've got to see this. What this is demonstrating is that the Antichrist is going to be a great deceiver. A lamb and a dragon? How can he appear like a lamb and then like a dragon? These don't go together. He's just a very deceptive character. Um, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. All right, I'm not going to take the time to explain that right now. But look at verse 13. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Remember what they thought Jesus was? Who do men say that I am? Something that you're Elijah. What did Elijah do? He had the fire come down from heaven. Satan the Antichrist, is going to do signs and wonders in the same way that the great prophets of the Old Testament did. Lying signs and wonders. Remember, just because somebody does miracles doesn't mean they're from God. Remember when Moses went into, the, into Pharaoh and he threw his rod down and it became a snake? What did, what did the sorcerers of Egypt do? The same thing. All right. Now look at what this says. Verse 14, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast 
which had the wound by a sword and did live. So he rises from the dead. All right? Verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So they had to worship him or die. Now look at what this says in verse 16. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. The famous six, six, six. So what is going on? In order for this to happen, in order for what the Bible says about this one world leader to come true, in order for that to happen, in order for this to happen, the world must accept a single form of payment. They have to. Then, it'll probably be electronic. This would not have been possible just a few years ago. Let me read something to you. Do you believe it will be possible for people to be controlled electronically? How many of you think it would be possible for people to be controlled electronically? In our computerized society, where we are all numbered from birth to death, it seems completely plausible that someday in the near future, the numbers racket will consolidate and we will have just one number for all our business, money, and credit transactions. Leading members of the business community are now planning that all money matters will be handled electronically. Now, how many of you think, seriously, no sarcasm here, how many of you think that this right here is plausible? Would you raise your hand? Listen to when this was written. Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth, 1970. Do you remember watching TV back then? Remember Cannon? I loved it. Cannon would fight people. He'd hit him with his belly. That's, that's my kind of martial arts training. I'm training for that right now. But you remember he'd be driving down in that Lincoln Continental, that, that two-door Lincoln that he had? How many of you remember what I'm talking about? I thought it was so cool when he'd talk on the phone. It was a regular phone, you know, with the, 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 two, you know, the earpiece and the, you know, and the, with the cord in the middle of his car. And I thought that was so cool. How many of you now have a cell phone? Pretty soon, that's how you're going to buy and sell is through your cell phone. They've already got technology. They're already testing it. I think in uh, Atlanta, they said, well, you just take your cell phone and you put it over a product in the store and you punch in your PIN number and you just walk out because you've just purchased it. That's going on right now. How many of you think, cool, I'm in? You know, here's the deal. Don't be afraid you're going to take the mark of the beast if you use your cell phone to buy something. <laughs> How many of you remember people didn't want to use the barcode scanner at the grocery store because they thought it was the mark of the beast? It's not. You're going to know that you're taking the mark of the beast. It's a choice to reject the Savior and worship Him. right? But in order for that to happen, there has to be a one-world global currency, one form of payment. It's got to happen. And the technology is here. That's the world we're living in, folks. And we are rushing toward this. We're seeing it day by day, day by day. So what do we do? Remember I said three-quarters of the way? <laughs> we're going to go drink Kool-Aid? What are we going to do? Well, Pastor Nathan, we were talking, and Pastor Nathan just rattled off some things that he thought we ought to do. So I said, you need to type this up because it's so good. So this is all from Pastor Nathan. If you don't like it, yell at him. 
You need to understand, what are we supposed to do? Same thing we've always been supposed to do. Biblical principles don't change. I'm supposed to work hard and provide for my family. That might mean you have to work harder than you thought for less than you thought. When the Bible says um, a measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny, a measure of wheat, that's how much it would take to feed one person for a day. And a penny was the labor for a day. So you men, when this comes, a man will be working for a full day to have enough food to feed one person. Three measures of barley for a penny. The barley is a less nutritional, less nutritious thing. So sickness is going to come, nutrition, because you're going to feed your kids whatever you can. That's what's coming. So what are we going to do? I'm still supposed to work hard and provide for my family. I'm still supposed to tithe, Malachi 3.10. Remember what God says. Honor me, and I'll honor you. Remember the, the widow, Elijah went to the widow, and he said God had told him to go, and God had told her he was coming. And he said, uh, will you bring me something to eat? And she said, I only have enough meal and oil to make a cake for my son and I, and then we're going to die. And the man of God said, feed me first. And she did. And God honored that, and she had food through the end. We need to believe God. How many of you here believe God? Well, when money gets tight, still honor the Lord with your finances. I'm still supposed to help others. I'm still supposed to help others. Do you remember what our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 said? When you have money, you're supposed to set some aside so that you can communicate to the needs of others. That word communicate, it always in your Bible, it always has to do with the idea of giving money. It's obvious from the context, right? Right? That I'm still supposed to be, I'm still supposed to not be in overwhelming debt. I'm still supposed to not be in overwhelming debt. So here's the idea. Get out of debt. Work hard. Provide for your own. Do you think any of this would help the welfare state? This is what we're supposed to do. What is the remedy? Now we're back to good stuff from me. Back to basics. Hard work. No shortcuts. Let's stop looking for somebody to give us money. Amen? Let's just work hard. Then self-reliance versus entitlements. Earn before you yearn. Spurn debt. That's it. Self-reliance versus entitlements. Earn before you yearn. Then, living virtuous lives. Real values versus covetousness. We need to know what really counts. What really counts is family, serving the Lord, loving one another in Christ's body, winning people to the Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificing for one another. That's the remedy to this. Reconnect character with destiny. Behavior matters especially in spiritual issues. We're supposed to act like believers. What are you going to do when you lose your job? You're going to lose your faith because you're trusting in uncertain riches? Or are you going to trust in your Creator, the God who makes everything? Then reverence the God of our heritage. Do you know what's happened in our society and our culture? This is what we're going to look at next week. Modern education, the counsel of the ungodly. What we've done is we've allowed this cloward piven strategy We've allowed the counsel of the ungodly. We've allowed the secularists, those who do not believe in God and think that he does not have a place in the public arena. We've allowed them to take control. We need to remember who created us. We need to remember who allowed the United States of America to be established. We've got to get back to that. We've got to vote for people who do. Then prayer. Pray that the lessons won't be wasted. We're learning some lessons right now, aren't we, financially? 
fiscally? Let's pray that those lessons aren't wasted. Then how about this? Depressing horizon only to the uninformed. The Bible talks about the birth pangs of Jesus Christ's return. Have they begun? Bring them on. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I've got to tell you, I've never been more excited about the future than I am right now. Because we're seeing all the things. Honestly, if this sermon doesn't give you more confidence in the Word of God, man, you're in big trouble. God told us all of these things would happen. Can you imagine? Bob, you're 80, what? 81. When you were a young man, maybe 18, could you imagine all of Europe becoming one country? The scoffers about what we teach from the Bible mocked it. Why? They're killing each other by the millions. Right? Now they're one union. It's all coming together. It's all happening. So here's the question. Are you going to trust in uncertain riches? Or are you going to trust in the living God? Uncertain riches. The, uh, the, the world economy. Trusting in uncertain riches. Remember, and this, is, this is what I want you to know about the world economy. It's lost 50% of its value in the last year. 50, this is the world economy has lost 50% of its value in one year. Well, God told us it was going to happen. Let's trust Him.